Uh, the structure of Matthew uh, has teaching segments from Jesus followed by narrative segments. And so we completed the Sermon on the Mount a few weeks ago. And then Jesus came down from the mountain and we entered into this narrative section in chapters 8 and chapter 9. Uh, where he's healing and he's, he's displaying his power and authority. And so we actually complete uh, that narrative section today, uh, the last, uh, well, most of the last half of chapter 9, uh, before Jesus goes into a new teaching section, uh, which will begin next week. And so that's page number 1,509 of the Pew Bibles. And we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 9, uh, verses 18 through 34. Hear the word of the Lord. While Jesus was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord. They replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, will it be done for you? And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask, as we do every Sunday, that you would open our hearts and minds to see the glory of Christ on the dis uh, displayed on the pages of Scripture, that we might be moved uh, to deepen our faith or to believe for the very first time. We pray, God, that you would um, reveal your Son to us again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's always amazing to me uh, that two different people can see the same evidence and come to completely different conclusions. Uh, if you're watching a football game and you, you see a great play in the end zone, uh, one uh, person sees pass interference and the other person sees a great defensive play. 
you're playing basketball and somebody comes and steals the ball. One person sees a foul. Uh, another person sees a great steal, and they are looking at the exact same evidence, and yet their conclusions about what they see is completely different. One person looks at poverty and homelessness and sees laziness and self-indulgence. Another person looks at the same evidence, and they see victims caught in a broken system. Some people look at creation You see the evidence of an all-powerful God hanging stars in the sky and giving us rainbows and sunsets. And other people look at creation and see the unfolding of one blind natural cause after another over billions of years. And you wonder, how can this be? Isn't there such a thing as truth? Shouldn't we be able to look at the same exact evidence and and then reason together and, and come to the same conclusion. Throughout Matthew's gospel, he is giving us all of the evidence that we need to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the one who has come to save his people from their sins. He is the one God promised to send and to deliver his people. He's fulfilling prophecy When he was baptized, God speaks and says, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. After he endures the temptation in the wilderness, he goes to the mount and he teaches with power and authority. And then he comes down from that mountain and he displays that same power and authority, except now we see it being uh, taken over nature, over sickness, over demon possession proving he has the authority to forgive sins. And there are two responses to this. Two different people look at the exact same evidence and some believe and some do not. We either see the evidence presented to us by Matthew and believe, or we see the evidence and we come to a completely different conclusion about who this Jesus is. So what makes the difference? Just like it would be hard to imagine a Seahawks fan becoming a 49er fan, or an evolutionist becoming a creationist, what would it take for someone to see who Jesus really is? So to answer that question, here's our outline this morning. Uh, First, we're going to look at faith sees its need. But faith, true faith, sees its real need. And finally, true faith is a gift from Jesus. So true faith sees its need. So here's here's an honest question for us this morning. When was the last time you changed your mind about something very significant? Because usually what happens is all the evidence we see about something confirms what we already believed anyway. And so it's really difficult to actually change our mind. And my guess is that for most of us, it's been a long time since that has happened. But when it does, it's usually because some new piece of information comes, and we're forced to consider it. And usually we're forced to consider it because something really out of the ordinary has happened in our life. 
Uh, you might change your view of government regulation and the economy if your business gets shut down and you lose your livelihood. Uh, people change their mind about COVID if they never saw anyone die or if somebody close to them died. And sometimes people move to a new city and after a while they do begin to root for that local sports team. Because moving is a significant life event as well. But it usually takes undeniable truth or some kind of significant event in our life to change our mind about our deeply held beliefs. And it's the same thing with faith in Jesus. The power, the authority, and the promises of Jesus don't really mean much to us until something happens in our life to make us feel our need for that kind of power and that kind of authority and those kind of promises. And so our passage this morning opens with the story of a synagogue ruler whose daughter has just died. We read, while Jesus was saying this, a synagogue ruler came and knelt before him. If you remember when the leper came, the beginning of chapter 8, and he knelt before Jesus, we pointed out that this word could also be translated worshipped. So we don't know, did, did he come and just simply kneel before Jesus out of respect, or did he come and fall down before him and worship? And he said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. So we know from the book of Mark that this man's name is Jairus, and that his daughter was 12 years old. Uh, my oldest son is 10 years old. And I, I can't imagine what it would be like if he died. Every once in a while, it dawns on me that it's possible that that could happen. And just even thinking about the possibility puts chills into my body. And some of you in this room have experienced the death of a child. Whereas the rest of us can only imagine what kind of pain and grief that would cause. And that's what Jairus is feeling. The local synagogue was like a local church and a community center all wrapped into one, making the synagogue ruler something like a pastor and a mayor. We can also safely assume that, like most of the religious leaders who saw and heard Jesus, that Jairus was skeptical of him. Jesus was a threat to the current religious establishment that Jairus was part of and that he was benefiting from. And all this is happening in Jesus' hometown in Capernaum. So Jairus knew who Jesus was. He heard the stories. He might have known someone healed by Jesus or saw a healing himself. But uh, <laughs> he'd seen all this before. Uh, Jairus wasn't the first uh, self-appointed religious leader to gather a following, and so he was willing to wait this one out as well, probably. But then his daughter got sick. And then she died. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this profound grief, he realizes that there's this man here. And he's going around and he's, he's healing lepers. 
And he's, he's casting out demons, and he's doing all these amazing, wonderful things, and he thinks to himself, he can, he can bring my daughter back. You see, it's when we're desperate that all of a sudden we find ourselves doing things and thinking things that we've never done or thought before. I recently read a blog article written by a, a woman who, um, when her son was in utero, uh, they realized that he was going to be disabled. And she was raised in the Reformed Church. She even went to a Reformed college. Uh, but her and her husband decided they wanted to go to a charismatic church because they so desperately wanted to be with people who believed that their son could be healed. They wanted to be able to go to prayer meetings every week where they didn't just pray, but they believed that healing could happen. And the article was four years later, or maybe four and a half years later, when her son was four years old, and, and he was still disabled. My point is that she changed her mind about her religious tradition because something significant happened in her life. And that's what Jairus does here. The only difference being that Jesus was clearly and verifiably and actually healing people. And then as Jesus is on his way to go and lay hands on Jairus' daughter, we meet another desperate person. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. And she said to herself, and this could be translated, she kept saying to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Again, Mark gives us a little more um, information about this story. We find out that this woman has spent all of the money that she has on doctors to, to try to heal her, and they've only made her worse. And the kind of bleeding she had was the kind of bleeding that women deal with every month, but hers never stopped. This would have made her anemic. After 12 years of it, she would have been exhausted, uh, short of breath. Her skin would have been pale. And so just think about the effort that it would have taken in that physical condition to come and to even drag herself to the place where Jesus was at, let alone fight through the crowds of people just so she could touch his cloak. But her health and her strength and her stamina, that's not her only problem here. She's also ceremonially unclean. And anyone she touched would have been unclean too. And she would have been touching a lot of people in this crowd. Uh, Leviticus 15.25 says this, it says, when a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period. This meant if she sat down on a couch and then somebody came and sat down after her, they would be unclean. If they even touched her, they would be unclean. No wonder it seems like she just wants to touch Jesus' cloak and then be on her way. But Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. You see, Jesus could have just let her touch his cloak and then go on her way. But he didn't do that. 
He stops, and we're told that he saw her. And this word here for saw, this isn't the word for just looked at. He didn't just look at her. He, he, he perceived her. He, he understood her. And he says, take heart, daughter. Have courage. Know that I see you and that I care for you and that you've been healed because you believed that I could heal you. He wanted her to know there was nothing magical about touching his cloak. He wanted her to know that the reason she was healed was because she believed and had faith that Jesus could heal her. She was desperate. She knew her need and that Jesus was the only one that could heal her. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away, the girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. So this was a typical scene after a death in Jewish society. People would be wailing and screaming in grief. They would bring in flute players to play. Uh, sometimes they would even hire people to come and to, uh, uh, to kind of increase the, the uh, experience, to escalate the moment. <laughs> this is the opposite of what we do in America, where we kind of sit quietly and talk to each other in hushed whispers. And when Jesus says the girl is not dead but asleep, he's not saying that she's not actually dead. He's saying death is not the end. Our lives go on after we die, and so it matters what we believe about what happens after we die. And then notice the crowd laughs. This is unbelief. They're looking at the evidence of this man, this miracle worker. They would have known as well that he was healing people and casting out demons, and yet when he says he can raise the dead, they laugh at him. This is how the world responds when we say, Jesus saved me from my sins. They laugh. They don't believe a Jewish carpenter who died on a cross almost 2,000 years ago could rise from the dead or save anyone from their sins. They don't even believe that you really have sins that you need to be saved from. And so they laugh because the cross is foolishness to them. They see all of the evidence that we see, but they don't see their need. They're not desperate to be forgiven of their sins. And then Jesus goes in and he takes the girl by the hand and the text says that she got up. A literal translation of this would be she arose. Up from the grave, she arose. And the news spread about this everywhere. And so you can just picture people leaving there and going out and saying, hey, this man, Jesus, who's been healing lepers and and casting out demons, he brought Jairus' daughter back from the dead. This is amazing. This should all be enough evidence to convince anyone to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the one who can save his people from their sins. But true faith must see its real need. 
In chapter 8 and 9 of the book of Matthew, we see some incredible displays of Jesus' power and his authority over nature and over disease and demons. We see people who are amazed at, at what he's doing, and they, they think to themselves, well, maybe that he can do something like that for me. And all this is happening because Jesus, in Jesus, the kingdom of God is present on earth in this pure, concentrated form because the creator of the universe is, is literally walking the streets and fulfilling prophecies. The, the picture I have, it's, it's, almost like, it's almost like the kingdom of God is just spilling out of Jesus wherever he goes. And all this proves that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus cares about the suffering of people. He cares that we are sinners living in a fallen world and that there's great sorrow and sadness because of that. And these, these stories, they invite us to come to him with our pain and our suffering. But there's a deeper truth that these healings are picturing for us, and that's what Jesus told the Pharisees in our passage from last week after he forgives the sins of the paralyzed man. He says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Friends, our biggest problem in this life is not that even one of our children dies. Our biggest problem in this life is not even a 12-year-old a 12-year-long medical condition that leaves us sick and tired and alone. I was listening to a book on tape yesterday. I've heard that's not called a book on tape anymore. It's actually called an audio book. And uh, this, this woman was telling the story of how she became a Christian. And she, she was in college, and then she started going to Biola University. And after her first week in college, she went out dancing with uh, a bunch of her roommates and some uh, men drugged her and took advantage of her. And she woke up the next morning, and she was covered in bruises, and she went to her roommates, and she told them what happened, and that her roommates were driving her to the police station, and on the radio was playing In Christ Alone. And she said, I began to weep, and I began to cry, because I knew that I was forgiven and that God loved me. And my, and my mind like bent in that moment as I'm listening to this story because I can't imagine something more horrific happening to a human being. And yet this girl is describing that the morning after one of the worst events of her life, she has so much peace, so much peace, simply because she was a child of God. And that she could know that in Christ alone. Now, I can't explain that to you. I, ca I can't draw a picture and, and, and create a logical equation how, how you get from one thing to another. All I can tell you is the fact that we have a Savior who can save us from our sins is the greatest truth in the universe. Our biggest problem in life is our sin and that God is holy. 
and these stories of healing and fulfilled prophecy and displays of power and authority are meant to assure us that Jesus saves his people from their sins. Sure, Jairus believed that Jesus could bring his daughter back from the dead. But did he know that Jesus could bring him back from spiritual death? Paul says that apart from faith in Jesus, we are dead, dead in our trespasses and sins. Sure, this women, woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, she believed that Jesus could purify her and make her whole. But did she also know that Jesus is faithful and just and will forgive her sins and purify her from all unrighteousness? See, that's the mystery. That's the question behind these healings. Next we read, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him. So notice, in this passage, Jesus is overcoming literal death, literal impurity, and now actual blindness. And so we read that passage from Ephesians just a second ago to show, right, that that our biggest problem is spiritual death. We read the passage from 1 John a second ago to show that our biggest problem is spiritual impurity, right? And then Paul goes on and tells us later in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. (laughs) So we see Jesus exercising authority over physical death, impurity, and blindness so that we will know he has authority to forgive sins. This is why someone can take a look at all of the evidence about Jesus and still not believe. Because they are so dead, filthy, and blind that it takes a miracle for us to believe that forgiveness is our greatest need and that Jesus can make us alive and that he can purify us from all unrighteousness and he can open our eyes to see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David! When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. So these men are blind, They've never actually seen Jesus perform any miracles. They've never actually read the Old Testament. They've just heard about these miracles and heard the stories from Scripture. And yet they believe that he is the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of Israel, the true Son of David. But Jesus is not ready to acknowledge that title publicly yet, and so he goes inside his house, but they follow him. And then he asks them a very pointed question. He says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. So they called him Lord. They believed he could give them their sight. They believed he was the Messiah because the Old Testament taught them that when the Messiah comes, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. 
Then will the lamb leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So they believe this. They believe all that. They believe Jesus is the Messiah, and that he's right there in front of them, which is an, it's an amazing thing. And then we're told, Jesus touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. So according to your faith just means because you have faith, let it be done to you. So they believed Jesus could open their eyes. That is true. But did they believe Jesus could save them from their sins? Did they even know that their biggest problem in life was not that they were blind and couldn't see, that their biggest problem in life was that the blood of bulls and goats can do nothing to take away their sins, and that the son of David had come to die in place of sinners? Did they know that? Because look what happens when Jesus heals them. We're told Jesus warned them sternly. See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. So this word translated, warned them sternly. This is the Greek word, embromaomai. And when talking to someone else, this word can be translated scold or reprimand. Right? So there's an emotional charge behind the word. It's also used to describe Jesus in John chapter 11 after his good friend Lazarus dies and he goes to be with the family. We read this. It says, When Jesus saw Mary's weeping and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved or he was embromaomide in spirit and troubled. And so when Jesus sternly warns these men not to say anything, his spirit is deeply moved. So this is not Jesus just saying, oh, by the way, you know, don't say anything to anybody about what happened here. No, this is Jesus grabbing them, looking them deeply into the eye, and with all of the emotive force that he is capable of expressing, saying, don't tell anyone what I've done for you. But what do they do? They went out and spread the news about him all over the region. They responded to being given their sight and Jesus' passionate request to be quiet about it by completely ignoring Jesus' command and going out and telling everyone what happened. See, I can't help but wonder if receiving their sight was actually the worst thing for their soul. Could it be that by seeing, they actually became blind? So I know some of you are going through deep waters in life right now. And for many of you, I don't know the extent of your trials or your suffering. But if Jesus is not taking it away, if he's leaving you in it, you can know that he has a reason for it. If Jesus gives us the thing we're asking for, 
it might make us blind to our real need, which is a Savior who can forgive us and give us a new heart. Sometimes it's our suffering that reminds us most often and most honestly that all of our biggest problem in this life is that we're sinners and that if we come to him for forgiveness, we can hear him say, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And the cry of faith says, yes, Lord. I believe you can save me from my sins. And if we believe that, we can know that he will say to us, according to your faith, let it be done to you. No matter how dark our thoughts, no matter how selfish our actions, no matter how constant our struggle, because he came to save us from our spiritual death, our spiritual impurity, our spiritual blindness, and maybe the struggle of our physical blindness is the thing that he's using to keep us seeing who he really is. Finally, true faith is a gift from Jesus. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. So this story is very different than the stories that we've looked at so far today. Uh, this man was possessed by a demon, kept him from talking. Uh, that word translated could not talk is a word that also could mean deaf and mute. So not only could he not talk, but he probably couldn't hear either. And everyone else in this passage, well, they could hear the stories about Jesus. They responded to those stories by believing Jesus could heal them too. And they could talk so they could come to him and, and cry out to him and ask him for healing. But this man, he had to be brought to Jesus. He wasn't even looking for healing. He wasn't asking for it. He, he might have had no idea he was even possessed by a demon. So the story says nothing about his faith or his belief in what Jesus could do for him. And we began today by asking how people can look at the same evidence and come to different conclusions. And the truth is, when it comes to Jesus, we're all too dead, filthy, blind, enslaved, and mute on our own. We can't even see our need or even ask him for help. But Jesus heals this man because he wanted to heal him. And because someone else was bold enough to bring this man to him for healing, You see, the person who changes their mind about Jesus and believes that he can save them from their sins is somebody that Jesus has come in and just made them alive, purified them, opened their eyes, opened their mouth, ripped them, bought them out of slavery. The most significant thing that happens is that Jesus decides to do that for sinners. Sometimes he brings trials and struggles into our life to help open up our heart to see our need. And then he moves us to come to him and ask him to forgive our sins. Sometimes we hear his law 
And it just convicts us to where the gospel becomes our only comfort. Other times, someone else brings us to him in prayer. But no matter how it happens, if, if you're here this morning and you have faith to believe that your greatest sickness is your sin and that Jesus can raise you from the dead and purify you from all unrighteousness and open your blind eyes, then you have been given a gift, a precious gift that we cannot take for granted. And then when he sternly warns us about how to respond to the gift of forgiveness, when he is deeply moved and embromaomies us and tells us how to live as a child of God, unlike the two blind men in this passage, may we, with grateful hearts, trust his commands and live as he's calling us to live. Our passage ends this way. It says, the crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And I don't think this is hyperbole. I think they mean quite literally that nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Which is a massive contrast with the next verse, which is, but the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Right? Because nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel, the Pharisees are forced to admit that it's happening. Right? The evidence is in living color before their eyes. Jesus can heal. He can raise the dead. But they come to a completely different conclusion. They think Satan is at work in all of this. They're going to say this about Jesus again later in chapter 12 of Matthew, so I'll save most of my comments about that then. But I, I do want to point out that this is the unforgivable sin. To see the undeniable evidence of God's power and then attribute it to Satan. You see, the crowd here, it doesn't seem like they've come to really believe yet. But they see the evidence, and they're amazed by it. They're so amazed that they say no one has ever seen anything like it. But it's one thing to be impressed and amazed by Jesus. It's another thing to believe he can save you from your sins. Because if we're just amazed by Jesus, then nothing has to change. We don't have to confess our sin we don't belong to him. We don't have to be in debt to him, which means we don't have to live out of gratitude for all he's done for us. If we're just amazed by him, then he doesn't own us. But if we're a sinner and he has saved us from our sins and all we have to do is look outside of ourselves completely to him and to all that he's done for us and simply believe and rest in his work, and we're saved at the fruit of that reality is that when he embromaomize us, we hunger and thirst to obey. Because he's our king. He's our Lord. He's our savior. He's our only hope. He's our healer. He is our redeemer. He is our friend. We were dead. We were filthy. We were blind. 
We were deaf. We were enslaved. And for some reason, this great king chose, chose to come to have mercy on us and to regenerate our hearts, and to open our eyes, and to make us alive, and to give us faith, and to cause us to be able to look to him and to receive all of his benefits to where it doesn't matter our circumstances in this life. We recognize that if that's what he had to do to bring us to him, then it was worth it. If that's what he has to do to keep us in him, if that's the means he's using to maintain our faith all the way to the end, then praise him. Praise him. I will accept it because I have the greatest gift anyone could ever have. The most amazing thing about Jesus is that he is willing to die in our place, that he is willing to take our sin, our sin upon his perfect self and then to give us his perfect righteousness. May we all look at this evidence and believe that he is able to do that for us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning again grateful for the mercy and the kindness of a Savior. A Savior that we didn't even know we needed until you caused something significant to happen in our life, which is belief. To see our need and to see your provision of a Savior. We thank you for this, God. We worship you because of this. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.